Welcome back to Corn Fed Killer, curious listener. I'm Michelle. Let's get into it. We are continuing our discussion of the Starved Rock murders that took place in 1960 in Starved Rock State Park in LaSalle County, Illinois. We talked last time about the actual crime, the details surrounding it, the place, the investigation we talked about. We talked about Chester Weger and his being followed, his questioning, his passing six polygraph tests, and we really dove into his confession. Now, I'm not sure what y'all think, although I would love to know. Please, you know, shoot me an email or catch me on Instagram or Twitter and let me know um, if y'all are in the same boat as me, thinking that Chester Weger is an innocent man. I'd love to know your opinion. So, you know, please do that. Please reach out. So today we're going to be getting into the trial. Before we actually get into the guts, the nitty gritty of the trial, there's a couple things that you need to know going in. The first thing is that Chester Weger was only tried for the murder of Lillian Oding, not Francis Murphy's murder or Mildred Lindquist's murder. Now, you're probably scratching your head thinking, well, why the hell not? They were all murdered at the same time. Well, the reason is that Anthony Recuglia, the prosecuting attorney, thought that they might lose. He thought that the state might lose and Chester might get an acquittal. So he wanted to avoid double jeopardy. And just in case Chester Rieger was acquitted, then he could go ahead and try him for the murder of Francis Murphy and or the murder of Mildred Lindquist. So, you know, that to me is very telling. It's very telling. If the state prosecutor was convinced that he had the right man, why wouldn't he try him for all three murders? Why not? So, um, I'm going to tell you a couple things that you've probably realized that Anthony Recuglia, the prosecutor, already knew. And I'm going to tell you as we're discussing the trial, some things that I have not mentioned before that he knew going in. Things that potentially prove Chester Weger is innocent. Remember, we talked about a lot. We talked about the confession. Anthony Recuglia, years later, talked about this confession, and he himself called it absolutely ridiculous. Oh, whoa. He is the prosecuting attorney. He is the guy who put Chester behind bars. And he has admitted that this confession was absolutely ridiculous. If you watch the documentary, The Starved Rock Murders on HBO, he, that, that is information that is given in that video and Anthony Recuglia is interviewed by his own son, David Recuglia, about the case. And he says 
You know, you have to understand back then, uh, it was okay if a confession was coerced. It was okay if a defendant was leaned on. Um, do I think we could get him convicted today? No. So, I, I mean, hello? You know, so this, that statement alone to me makes it enough for an appeal and overturning. I mean, or even, you know, an overturning. So uh, it's just ridiculous. And the other thing I want you to know about the trial before we really get into it is that Anthony Recuglia and the state are going for the death penalty. They are going for the death penalty. They want to kill a 21-year-old that I believe they know is innocent. I, I don't know how people can do this. All right, so let's get into it. As I've said, and as you, I'm sure, remember, Anthony Recuglia is the prosecuting attorney. Chester's defense attorney is a man named John McNamara. All right, so first let's talk about those alleged scratches. Remember how Chester says, quote, that's how I got them scratches during the reenactment? The prosecution calls the chef from the lodge, Glenn Comadi, and asks him if he saw scratches on Chester on the Monday of the murders. Glenn Comadi tells the court that Chester had a bruise on his face along with several small scratches. Chester's defense attorney asked the judge that he be given a copy of any statements that Kamadi may have made to the police in regards to the scratches. The judge agrees, and the prosecution has to furnish McNamara with copies. Anthony Recuglia tries to stop it. He objects. He tells the judge, uh, I object because we're not sure, you know, what he's going to do with these. <laughs> Duh. So anyway, thankfully, the judge agrees with McNamara, and they get he gets the copies. So when Glenn Kamadi is on the stand, and it's time for McNamara's cross-examination of him, he confronts him with a statement that, he, that Glenn made to the police in October of 1960, when he was asked about the scratches, and he says, quote, I never seen any scratches, end quote. You might be wondering why McNamara had to ask to be given the copies in the first place, because wouldn't he have already had them? Isn't that this how, you know, isn't that how that works? That the evidence is shared between the prosecuting attorney and the defense attorney? And let me tell you, that's how it works now, but back in 1961, it did not. The prosecution at that time was under no obligation, at least by law. I think they had a moral obligation, but uh, as you're going to find out, Anthony Recuglia is pretty lacking in the moral department. I think his oral, moral compass is way the fuck off. So, all right. So, in 1961, again, it, it is not law 
So the defense has no legal, re, you know, no legal obligation to give the defense any possible exculpatory evidence. Now, exculpatory evidence is defined as any evidence that might point to or prove a defendant's innocence. So a law mandating that any and all exculpatory evidence be shared with the defense came into effect in, ready for it, 1963. 1963. Two short years after this trial. Kind of makes me wonder if this trial had any uh, bearing on that law. I couldn't find any information if it did or didn't, but it would be interesting to know. So, Verkuliglia didn't have any, didn't have to give McNamara anything, essentially. So, keep this little nugget in your brain as we go through this, as we continue. Um, and as we know, that law that they have to turn over any exculpatory evidence still exists today. All right, let's talk about that infamous twine. Glenn Kamadi is called to the stand again, and remember he's a chef at the lodge, and he's asked about the twine. He says that he orders the twine for the lodge and that he orders both 12 and 20-ply string. He tells the court that the twine he orders is common in kitchens and butcher shops, and that you can order it from several different places. He himself says, oh, I order it from two or three different places. So not hard to come by, widely used. So even if, if, and that's a big if, because I think that Harlan Warren has no moral scruples either, and he was the one who said that they were a match, the twine there and the twine at the murder scene. Um, if you remember at the murder scene, there was 10 and 20 ply string and Glenn Kamadi does not say anything about 10 ply string. So it, you know, it, it doesn't, that at least is proven not to match. But again, even if it did, it's a common kind, you know, it's twine is common and, and used widely. So, all right, let's talk about. Assistant State's Attorney Craig Armstrong. If you remember, he was in the car with Bill, Deputy Sheriff Bill Dummett when Chester says that he told him he was going to ride a thunderbolt. All right, so Craig Armstrong takes a stand, and he's asked about that conversation. Craig Armstrong testifies that Bill Dummett told Chester that he was going to ride a thunderbolt and that Chester replied, no, I'm not going to the chair because I didn't kill anyone. This is the same thing that Chester Weger has said transpired between him and Dummett during that car ride. Um, if you watch the documentary, Chester, you know, talks about this and says, you know, that's exactly what happened. He threatened it with me or threatened me with it, and I said, I'm not going because I didn't kill anybody. Too bad he didn't... Too bad that wasn't correct. <laughs> All right. So Armstrong goes on to, stay, to say on the stand that he heard Dummett use the term thunderbolt more than once. 
more than once. And he also testifies that the term the chair was used by both of them during that car ride. Not not him. By both of them, I mean Chester and Deputy Sheriff Bill Dummett. And, you know, Chester admits he said, yeah, I'm not going to go into the chair because I didn't do anything. So uh, to me, this is like, boom, mic drop. <laughs> you know, you might be thinking that, too. Um, but why, why is this so important? Well, for one thing, it proves that the police threatened Chester Weger with death. If you recall, this is a tactic of psychological warfare, and we know that Harlan Warren wanted to, well, let's just say it, Harlan Warren declared psychological warfare on Chester and instructed the police department how to do it. All right. And beyond that, it proves that Chester's confession was made under duress. And again, when we're talking about his confession and the way that it was brought about, remember that he didn't confess until 36 hours after being inter of, of interrogation. And I want to point out that according to Chester... Bill Dummett hit him in the groin several times, taunted him. That hurt, didn't it? You know, things like that. He, again, talked about riding a thunderbolt to him over and over. He tried to um, really make Chester frightened. And if you think about it, kicking him in the balls, that's not going to leave any marks that people are likely to see. So, you know, you can see why this is happening um, that way. All right. And also, another thing about the confession, Chester says, now there's no proof of this, but I gotta say, I, I pretty much lean towards believing it. Chester said that Bill Dummett, Sheriff, Deputy Sheriff Bill Dummett, this asshole that keeps punching him and kicking him in the balls, um, he wrote the confession. He said that he had already written it, he had it already written down. And to me, it sounds like that's probably true because if you recall in the oral confession Chester's reading it and then Bill Dummett is telling him to sign every page sign every page sign every page um and there are only parts of it that are written in Chester's handwriting so you know to me a written confession means that the perp <laughs> wrote it but in this case, that's not what happened. So, all right. So let's continue on with this bastard, Bill Dummett. So in an affidavit, which is a sworn statement from a witness, Edward J. Kulik Jr., who, was an, who is an Illinois attorney and was a former assistant state's attorney of LaSalle County, he said of Detective Sergeant Dummett, 
quote, his nickname was Dustpan Dummett. In situations when sheriff's investigators were attempting to get a statement out of a defendant, Captain Dummett was often brought in to glean a verbal confession, end quote. This fucking guy, I swear. Okay, so Bill Dummett also took the stand in Chester Weger's trial. He was asked if he ever told Chester that he was going to ride a thunderbolt. He said no. <laughs> he said no. So he, you know, Chester Arm Chester testified to that. Craig Armstrong, who was in the car, testified to that. Bill Dummett on the stand says, nope, never said it. This man is shady as fuck. I mean, he obviously has no trouble lying in court. I mean, he's clearly perjured himself and doesn't give a fuck. So, all right. Let's get into Chester's alibi. I'm sure you'll remember that Chester said that he was in nearby Oglesby with his friend and co-worker Stanley Tucker getting a haircut at the time that the murders were believed to have occurred. Stanley Tucker did take the stand at Chester Weger's trial. But when asked about the night in question, he says that he was not with Chester. That he doesn't even remember if he saw Chester that day. What? Why would he lie? Chester describes Stanley as his best friend, that he was like a brother to him. A friend of, St of Chester's and Stanley's comes forward years later and says that she was told by Stanley that the police threatened him and his family, and that's why he felt like he had to lie on the stand. Had to lie. Oh, oh my God. All right. So, what are you thinking here? What are you thinking? <laughs> Phew. All right. Thanks for hanging in there with me, curious listener. Are you convinced yet? Are you convinced that Chester Weger is innocent? In case you're still on the fence, allow me to share this little nugget with you. On March 21st, 1960, just five days after the murders, a telephone operator named Lois Zel Zelenzik accidentally overheard a very interesting conversation. Now, for our younger listeners who may not know, back in the day, before cell phones were a thing, people often used payphones. And once you put money into the payphone, you had a certain amount of time to talk. And if you wanted to continue the call, you had to put in more money. And at this point, the operator would interrupt the call by getting on the line and telling you that you needed to deposit more money to keep talking. So Lois Zelenzik tells police that she got on a call to tell the parties that more money was needed to continue when she overheard two men talking about what she thought to be the Starved Rock murders. She says that one of the men mentions a, quote, big write-up in the paper today about the murder, you know, the kid has those bloody overalls in the car, and he's getting afraid of getting caught, end quote. The other man replies, quote, tell him to get rid of them, burn them, 
end quote. Holy bananas. Holy bananas. Whoever is having this conversation knows who killed the women at Starved Rock and knows where some evidence of the crime is. It implies that at least three people were involved, the two men on the phone, and at least one other person, whoever has the bloody overalls. And we don't know their roles. They could have had, you know, even bigger roles in the murders than just, you know, telling the kid, quote, the kid, what to do with the bloody overalls. The call also, to me, suggests premeditation, not a spur-of-the-moment murder like the police suggested at the trial. All right, so Lois Zelenzik told the police this story on April 20th, 1960. Everything she said was taken down and the police even traced the calls. They discovered that the call was placed from a payphone inside of a bar called Glenn's Bar in Aurora, Illinois. Glenn Palmatier is the owner of the bar. It is believed that he placed the call. The call was placed to the Peru, Illinois residence of Glenn's brother, William Palmatier. Interestingly enough, William Palmatier's residence is only a few miles from Starved Rock State Park. When asked about the call by the police, the brothers flat out deny that the call even took place. What the fuck? The call was traced to the bar that Glenn owns and to William's house. So we know it took place. They could even deny that they weren't the ones talking, but we know the fucking call took place. <laughs> like, what the fuck? All right. So Harlan Warren again gets involved and arranges for the brothers to have a polygraph test. I bet you are not surprised to learn that they allegedly, both of them, allegedly passed this polygraph test. So who are these two clowns? Well, first, let's start with William Palmatier. He grew up in LaSalle County and was active in politics. In 1946, he runs for the sheriff of Streeter, Illinois. By 1956, he owns a successful Pontiac and Buick dealership in Rock Island, Illinois, and one in LaSalle. In 1960, he's mentioned in connection with the Starved Rock murders in but is found to not be involved because he passed the lie detector test. There's even a big newspaper article about it, which may have been the one that they were talking about on the phone. What the fuck? What the freak fuck? Let me back up that for a second. Duh, Michelle, it could not have been the one they were talking about the headline they were talking about because they weren't tested until after that conversation. Duh. Okay. So anyway, um, Chester passed six, six, remember six polygraph tests, but these clowns pass one and they're innocent. This makes no sense. So, all right. In 1961, he runs for mayor. So same year as the trial, he runs for mayor of Peru and he fucking wins. 
William Palmatier is now the mayor of Peru in LaSalle County, where these murders took place. Bonkers. All right. William Palmatier dies in 67, and he's pretty young. Um, so, good riddance. All right. Glenn Palmatier, he's the one that owned the bar. Uh, he obviously also grew up in LaSalle County. In the late 1950s, he's nominated for police chief in Aurora and is appointed to city it is appointed the city liquor commissioner. In 1960, he's also deemed innocent because of the past polygraph. And in 1961, he runs for mayor of Aurora. Now, he doesn't win, but he's definitely a contender. And he dies just one year after his brother at the age of 56. So it's sort of interesting that they both die young. But I definitely wish they kind of wouldn't have because uh, maybe we could have found out who the real murders were, murderer, murderers were of these women. So any, any, anyway. Um, and by the way, when we're talking about someone who may have been involved, you remember old Gerald Nemke, the psycho juvenile delinquent I bet maybe you're wondering whatever happened to him remember he was sentenced to death after he murdered a girl and you probably thought well he's probably dead or still sitting on death row at this point well sadly no Gerald Nemke who had been sentenced to death had that sentence commuted for good behavior, so they changed it from death to life. And he got out on parole at age 35. 35. So he was, what, 17 when he went in? And he got out when he was 35. So he didn't even spend 20 years on a life conviction one a conviction that had originally been death so that's some bullshit and when he gets out he very shortly gets married and ends up stabbing his wife to death so you know maybe maybe we ought to keep people who are sentenced to death in prison hello all right so I want to bring up another character who I think knows what happened and see what y'all think after we listen to his story. So this is a guy called Smokey Rona. His real name was Harold, but he hated Harold and everybody called him Smokey. He was a man known around LaSalle County for being a career criminal. The police even joked that if a crime was committed in LaSalle County... You should go ask Smokey because Smokey either did it or he knows who did. So, all right. It was well known that Smokey had mob ties. And in fact, the Illinois Organized Crime Commission listed LaSalle County and neighboring Bureau County as, as, one, as two of the seven Illinois counties infested with organized crime. And like I said, 
Smokey, everybody knew he had mob connections. The police knew, everybody knew. Everybody knew he was a career criminal. He was in and out of prison um, for lots of different things, and violent crime was one of them. Um, Smokey died in 2006, but before he died, he told his sister that he was one of the men, one of the men involved in the Starved Rock murders. Now, there's another story about Smokey Rona. And I'm not going to tell it here because it's not been verified. Um, and the story was not something that is really out there in the ether as far as the research goes. However, um, I will tell you, if you want to know that story and you want to dive even deeper into the Starved Rock murders, uh, listen to the Andy Hale podcast. Andy Hale is Chester's current attorney. And he really, really, you know, goes ham on this case. And... You know, his podcast is really very good, too. So, you know, head on over there, and, and he really gets into it with Smokey Rona. Um, so give it a listen. All right, so as y'all know, my opinion is Chester was innocent, and he was railroaded by the state of Illinois. Um, I'm thinking that this was a premeditated murder. Probably one of the husbands wanted his wife dead. And the other two were collateral damage. Uh, some kind of mob hit, probably. Um, but also, I kind of lean toward um, Nemke as well, because he definitely could do something like that. So, you know, we may never know the truth about what happened. So, all right, uh, but, you know, can you even imagine, can you even fucking imagine poor Chester Weger? He went in when he was just 21. Uh, thankfully, he was granted parole in 2019, and in February 2020, he was paroled and got out at the age of 81. So paroled, as you know, does not mean that you are innocent. It means that you are out and you have a parole officer that you check in with. You have all kinds of restrictions, but at least he's not sitting in a jail cell anymore. But poor Chester, he was paroled in February of 2020. And y'all know that the pandemic was ran and rampant beginning in March and just got worse. And we were all locked down. So poor Chester, he just got out and then he can't even visit his family. Um, can't leave. He, he's living in a halfway house. He can't leave it. it. It's just a mess, but he's still hanging in there. Um, Chester had a wife and two young children when he went in. His wife and his daughter died while he was in prison, and his son is now in his 60s, and his son spent the majority of his life in and out of prison. Chester missed his son's whole childhood, his whole childhood and much of his adulthood. And it makes you wonder, you know, had Chester been around, would his son have, 
you know, taken a different path. Chester's parents also passed away while he was incarcerated. This is just a heartbreaking story all around for the victims and for Chester, who, you know, in my opinion, is also a victim. So what now? What can we do now? So believe it or not, some of the physical evidence taken at the crime scene in 1960 still exists. Chester's attorneys have been trying since 2005 to get access to the evidence and permission to have it tested for DNA. So they finally get the permission and it is currently being tested by a private company with an impeccable record. It is a hearing is scheduled for August 1st, which happens to be my birthday <laughs> um, of this year. So just in a few short months or not even, you know, a little over a month in which the DNA findings are supposed to be revealed. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to that announcement. We may never know what actually happened and who the killers actually were, but at least this could prove Chester's innocence if none of the DNA matches him. So I will be waiting with bated breath and I will let you know as soon as I know. I can assure you of that. So I will leave you with the old adage, you can bury the dead, but you cannot bury the truth. Well, we shall see. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, curious listener. <laughs>